Good morning. <clears throat> How are we? Good, good, good to see you. Uh, my name is RD. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Door Creek, and uh, always, always a pleasure to be with you. If you're a uh, first time guest new here, then uh, welcome. Don't be afraid. You only bite a little here, so you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Um, for those of you who are regularly coming, it's always good to gather with you, right, as the body of Christ, worshiping the Lord um, and hearing from Him. That's what we want to do uh, this morning. So uh, we're in a difficult text this morning. I, I'm just going to keep it real. Uh, and so if you if you came to church this morning, um, longing to hear a message about church discipline and sexual immorality, I've got really good news for you. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Um, and it is, it is something that you, this is why we, we preach through books of the Bible at Door Creek, because we want to uh, hear from the full counsel of God's word, and not just what we want to talk about, but what God wants to say. Because it's important what we think about God, but it's way more important what God thinks about us. And, and he's revealed what he thinks about us and about who he is in his word. And we're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and just uh, to catch you up or to remind you uh, or to make you aware for the first time, the book of 1 Corinthians is in your New Testament. It's one of the 27 books of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes this book after planning, starting a church in Corinth, uh, this city on the Isthmus that's all kinds of crazy, all kinds of crazy. He starts a church in Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila, this missionary couple. They birth this church. They grow this church. It's growing. Things are happening. But what sometimes happens at church? Problems. Because people are doing life together, right? And that can be difficult. And so just like it is at Door Creek, it's also the church in Corinth. Except they're the only church in town, and most of them are very new Christians. <laughs> and so they're trying to navigate, how do we do this whole life with Jesus thing together? We aren't really sure. And so Paul gets word that after he left, after about 18 months, he was, he was out of there. He was starting more churches. He was visiting more churches. After that, he heard from people at the church, hey, things are blowing up. Things are crazy. There's fighting with each other. There's disunity. There's sexual immorality. People don't believe in the resurrection. Things are not going well at the church in Corinth. So Paul's like, give me a book. Let's start writing. So I got to write to him. I got to tell him what's going on. And so he writes first and second Corinthians to the church to encourage them and challenge them. Because here's the big problem. Here was the big issue. God had saved all of them as individuals, place them in the family called the church. They have a new identity as sons and daughters of God, new creation, right? They're pure and blameless and spotless, but their behavior was not lining up with who they said they were as followers of Christ. Now, is that true of anyone here? Right. Okay, this is not a Corinthian problem. This is a heart, is a heart problem. Because RD, new Christian, new creation, blameless, spotless before the Lamb of God, the throne of God, and yet this week I sinned a ton. Just, was it only me? Is that? Okay, good. Well, this will be effective for the sermon for me then. All of us, right? All of us, week in and week out, we don't always live up to what we say we believe. And our identity and how we practice it can diverge. And for the Corinthians, that was true. Because when you come to faith in Christ, if you've come to faith in Christ, like I've said before, you don't get the Will Smith um, kind of memory erased, men in black thing, right? <laughs> I don't remember anything from my past. I am now completely free. I have no... Right? All of us bring our past and we bring baggage into our faith. And the issue is, how do we reconcile our past when we were far from Christ, things that we did that, that aren't honoring to the Lord? How do we reconcile that with newfound faith in Christ? We should live this way, but we don't always live this way. 
And what Paul wants to say is he wants to bring these two worlds together so that our practice, how we live, lines up with what the gospel is, with who Christ is. And so they're one. And that's our hope for each other, and it's Paul's hope for the Corinthians. And so whatever the issue is, whether it's disunity in chapters 1 through 4, it's sexual immorality in chapters 5 and 6, it's issues about, about um, generosity, about money, whatever that, whatever that is, Paul says, I want to address these issues. I want these problems to be solved by seeing it through the lens of the gospel. So all of us need to get gospel glasses and see how the gospel changes everything. Not just hear the three steps to not right, fight with each other or hear the two things to do to not be immoral, but how does the gospel transform our actual lives? And what we're looking at today are issues of sexual immorality and church discipline. What I want us to see at the beginning is that the gospel is central to both church discipline and also to sexual immorality. And so I titled the message, The Integrity of the Body which is not the title on your, your sheet because we've gone through a few iterations this week um, of, of the message, as can sometimes happen. And so the, the, the sermon is about the body, both the church, which is the corporate body, right? Paul talks about the, the church as the body. And so both that and also the individual body. And so the integrity of the body matters so deeply. How the church as a body lives in the world and how we as physical beings with bodies, how we live says everything about whether we believe the gospel or don't believe the gospel, whether we honor the Lord with our life or whether we don't. And so both chapters five and six are going to deal with these issues. The first will be the integrity of the church body and why Paul wants to protect the holiness and the wholeness of the church from toxicity and from sin. Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, verses 1 through 13. We'll read verses 1 through 5 um, together. Paul writes, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans, which means non-Jews or non-Christians, that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone in the morning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So here's what's going on here. You have this relationship that's happening within the church and the man is a member of the church. And uh, what happened was that um, his father was married likely to this woman that he's now having a relationship with, right? And likely the father passed away. Or he's no longer involved in some way, but he's, he likely passed away. And he was married to this woman who was likely much younger than him, probably actually closer in age to the son. And so when dad passes away, the son, this man who's a member of the church and this woman who's not a member of the church begin a sexual relationship. And it's been going on for some time within the church and they're not married, right? Um, and she, she's not a, a Christian and we know that because she doesn't face any discipline from Paul. 
But only people who are members of the church face discipline. And so he comes under discipline. He comes under church discipline. Paul says this, this relationship cannot be tolerated. So Paul is, is not just upset at the relationship itself. He's even more upset at the church for tolerating it. He's saying, how, what integrity do you have? What holiness is there among you if you are tolerating, not just tolerating, but you're proud of this relationship? Verse 2 says, and you're proud, right? Because the Corinthians, they brought their past, a very sexually promiscuous, sexually free past into their present. And they said, we're free in Christ. It doesn't matter who we sleep with. It doesn't matter what, how we use our bodies. We're free. We're, it's open. It's all good, right? We're the most progressive church in Corinth, right? They're the only church in Corinth. But you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, we can do all of this. And Paul's like, no, no, no. They're boundary markers for the community of faith. Everyone can be a part, can walk in the doors of Door Creek Church. We don't ask people when they walk in the door, hey, how was your week? Okay, less than 10 sins, great. Come in. You are welcome here. Glad you're here, right? Sit closer to the back, right? We're saving the front seats for the non, right? That's not how church works, right? We, don't, we just say welcome, glad you're here. But here's the deal. Though everyone is welcome to be part of the church in Corinth, in a sense, and everyone is welcome to be a part of Door Creek and be here, if you are a professed Christian, if you've died with Christ, right, and you are continuing to walk in unrepentant sin and rebellion to the Lord, and as the scripture outlines, right, and many people in your life, in the church, the leaders of the church have come to you and say, we want your behavior to line back up with the gospel, right? After doing that many, many, many times for the integrity of the church, for the glory of God and for the good of this person, the church has to say, you can no longer be a part of the community, right? Church discipline, I know, is, is not many of your favorite topics. And in a Western individualist culture, it strikes us as judgmental, as archaic, as how could a church ever kick someone out? I've never heard, that's like the antithesis of church, right? And in our culture, if that even happened, then someone could just get up and go to the next church, right? Well, they're going to welcome me as I am. Door Creek's a judgmental place. Here's the deal. Paul, Paul is zealous for the integrity of the church. He's not saying everyone in Corinth is perfect. I'm not saying everyone here has to meet this certain level to be a part of the church. What I am saying is that if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, then we have to be walking together in submission to Jesus, repenting and confessing to each other and to the Lord. That's a mark of a mature person. And if there's someone who we are allowing to be in the body, continually flaunting that, continually not repenting of that, ongoing after meeting with many, many people, right, over months and months and months, if they continue to do that and wave the Christian flag and wave the Door Creek Church flag, then for the sake of them, hoping they may come back, we say, you can't be a part of this community anymore. Right? Paul's hope in church discipline is that this man, once he's removed from the life-giving spirit of the church, he would just feel a kind of death that would make him long to come back to the church. In verse 5, he says as much. He says, the hope is that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So the, the hope for church discipline, for having integrity within the church, is not to keep people out or say, never come back. It's to say, I hope when you taste what life is like outside of the church, 
You long to come back and be with us. And when you come back, you're walking in repentance and humility and grace, confessing sin, owning sin, and together all of us are doing that. See, in Corinth, there was no middle step. There weren't any elders or leaders at the church who could have these conversations before they went to kind of the final step, right? Paul skips from step one to the final step because there's no one in the church who's going to be able to talk with him and, and have a conversation with him in a mature way. And because Paul's saying, you're proud of this. You're celebrating this. There's no one there that wants to bring you back or make you repent of this. So you know what, you guys, you have to expel him from the congregation for your health. And here is why Paul says that. It's not because um, right, it's just the right thing to do or because it's the moral thing to do. Paul grounds his command and church discipline in the gospel which is just beautiful and how it always should be. The gospel drives this. This is what we see in verses 6 through 8 here of chapter 5. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here, here, here's what's going on here. You're thinking now, um, what does Passover, unleavened bread, and dough have to do with a sexually immoral relationship in the church? Are you wondering that? Okay. Yes, you all are. Um, I was too. I'm thinking, Paul, what are, you, what are you saying here? And here's how we have to read the Bible as closely as we watch a toddler in the pool, Right? watching every single thing that Paul is trying to say here because of what he's trying to say is so profound. And so we've got to go back and do a little bit of history. Now, don't, I don't want to see your eyes glaze over. Oh. Okay, history. God, one, great. Great, let's get back to whatever helps me. This is so helpful. It's so helpful. So here's what Paul's talking about. He's referencing the Passover event. The Passover was the moment in the Old Testament, this seminal event where the people of Israel, God's holy and beloved uh, people who were under slavery in Egypt, they're under slavery in Egypt. God sends them a deliverer, Moses, and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Right? Remember that? And plagues and plagues come down and Pharaoh still won't do it. The final plague is the death of the firstborn. And so on the night this is going to happen, God says to Moses, tell every family in Israel, go get a lamb, slaughter this lamb, and place the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your house. And when I see that blood, I will pass over those homes, marking them as my own people and delivering them from the wrath that is coming. Here's how Exodus 12, 12 through 15 says it. It'll be on the screen. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day to the seventh must be cut off from Israel. So... God says, in order, I want you to celebrate the Passover. I want you to celebrate this salvation event. And how I want you to celebrate it is by cleaning out all of the old bread, all of the grimy bread, all the bread you've been using all year. I want you to get fresh bread. You know how fresh bread smells? Does anyone else go to the supermarket and just smell the bread? Is it just, if you see me, yeah, if you see me there, 
don't be alarmed. Just walk past me on the aisle. Like, I love the smell of new bread. He says, I want you to have new bread, fresh bread, a whole new dough. Because what the Israelites did up until that point is they would make a, a batch of dough every single week, and they would take a little bit of the yeast out of that dough and save it for next week's bread. So they wouldn't have to start it all over again. So they take some of the yeast out, some of the old yeast, put it in the new batch, and just keep doing that over and over again. But the problem was there was a health risk. Because when you're taking out this yeast, old yeast, and putting it in new bread, people could get sick. People could put not fewer because it's old mixed with the new. And so uh, God says, I want you to celebrate the Passover the blood of the lamb, by getting rid of all the old stuff. Clean out the fridge, clean out the cabinets, and have a week-long festival of new, fresh bread. Now, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Here's the connection Paul is making. Paul is saying, this, this man in the church who's having this relationship with this woman, he is the old yeast. He is the old yeast. And Jesus Christ is the much, much better and truer lamb who was sacrificed. He's the ultimate Passover lamb. And his blood was not just sprinkled on the doorpost of houses, but on your heart. So that when the wrath of God came for you and for I, we were hidden in Christ and our sins were forgiven. And Paul says, because of the sacrifice of our true lamb, because of the sacrifice of Jesus and what he's done for us, he has made us, the church, a new people, a new loaf a new piece of bread with no bad yeast in it. So now you, in response to what he's done, be the new loaf you already are and put to death the old yeast. Are you tracking with that? Now how profound is that? How deep is that? Paul grounds removing someone from the congregation saying you cannot tolerate sin because for what Jesus died, it makes a mockery of his death, right? The gospel does not give us permission to sin. It gives us the power for holiness. It gives us the power to live holy lives. What God demands of us, God provides for us in the Holy Spirit. He does not demand for us that which he does not provide in and of himself. And so he doesn't say, you find a way to clean out the yeast. Work really hard. Get that yeast out. Because guess what? All of us have the old yeast, right? All of us do. We've got to put it to death. But we can only put it to death because Jesus Christ was put to death for us in our place for our sin, rescuing us, making us blameless. And so now he doesn't say, go achieve that identity, but receive that identity and walk in that. Put to death your old life because you love Jesus Christ and because he loves you. Paul writes about it in Colossians 3 this way. It'll be on the screen. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also get rid, of your, get rid, rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language 
language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. That is what the death of Jesus has achieved for us. And that is the power to get rid of the yeast in our lives, to get rid of the, the, the darkness in our lives. And Paul is saying of the church, you've got to be passionate about getting rid of the old yeast. You cannot tolerate sin. Yes, you welcome sinners and you love sinners, but if they walk in open rebellion to the things of God, they cannot be a part of you. Because just like yeast spreads through bread, one sinner who's unrepentant will spread through the whole congregation. And then the church is not influencing the culture, the culture is influencing the church. And the two have now become one. And we're not being an alternative city. We're not being a counterculture. We're just being just like our city. We're being just like our culture. There's no salt. This is how important this is. It's done from love. It's done gently. It's done because of our reverence for the Lord and our love for other people, right? Parents, we discipline our kids because we love them. And discipline done rightly and gently leads to restoration, and leads to repentance. And repentance simply means coming home to the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. It's Paul's heart for the church. That's the integrity of, of the body. It matters so, so much. So now Paul shifts from the integrity of, of the body, and, he, and he, he moves to the integrity of our, of our physical body. So uh, he's going to talk a lot, a lot more um, about that throughout chapter 6. We're just going to pick up on the end of chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, to connect these, that as the body of Christ has to have integrity, so do our physical bodies have to have integrity. We both have to have integrity, because uh, especially when he's talking here about sexual integrity, uh, sexual integrity is one of the primary ways that we respond to the love of Jesus. How we use our bodies, what we do with our bodies, is one of the ways where we say, yes, I submit to King Jesus, or I, I don't submit to him. I'm going to read an article, part of an article here from Rolling Stones, which is obviously not in your scriptures. <laughs> it's a magazine. Uh, article from Rolling Stones that I read a year ago, and always I just tagged in case I just had a message like this. And the article title was called Tales from the Millennial Sexual Revolution. And I'm a millennial. A millennial is anyone who's born between 1980 and 2000. And the article talks about kind of the normative sexual practices of millennial, millennial people, uh, couples, and talks about those. And it's both amazingly fascinating and profoundly sad, the article is. And just a piece of the article says this. And I want us to have this in mind as we think about what are our bodies? Why do they matter? Why does God care about what we do with them? And this is what the article says. The writer's talking about a couple relationships. At 29, Curtis and his girlfriend have the most traditional arrangement. They met at a restaurant where they both worked at the time, happened to break up with people the same week, took advantage of their newfound freedom to sleep together immediately, and then started dating. An order of events, he says, is very much the norm. It's almost in reverse in a sense. It's like the relationship is the really special, unique part, while sex is a step you take to see whether or not you want to commit to the relationship. Joe is even more poignant. It's more fun to get sex out of the way and see how you connect. 
and then focus on who they are as a human. Are you interesting? Are you fun to be around? Great. Sex is inherently a huge step. At the end of the day, it's a piece of body touching another piece of body, just as existentially meaningless as kissing. See how Joe separates sex from even humanity, right? It's about me. I'll get sex out of the way. It's an act that brings me pleasure because sex in our culture is about self-satisfaction. And yet sex in the scriptures is about self-donation, about giving yourself to someone else. But we separate that now. It's just a transaction. It's just our body. What does it really matter? It's just as existentially meaningless as kissing. The Christian sexual ethic is, if you were to say it to people now, it would be at best puzzling. People would be puzzled by it. At worst, they would think you are not well in the head. Right? It's happened to me many times. I remember um, at a Christmas Eve party years ago when uh, I was in seminary, and I was talking to a girl who knew I was in seminary, and, and seminary, like being a pastor, once you kind of drop the seminary, the pastor card, people are just like, hey, forgive what I said for the past 10 minutes. I didn't, I didn't mean I love my mother-in-law. I love her. I don't. I know I said I want to kill her, but that was before I knew that you... Right? And I'm like, I forgive you. I love, it's all gravy. It's good. I don't really, it's fine, you know? And seminary can have the same thing, but then they think you're like reading all this. So like, hey, tell me about, you know, this specific thing. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I haven't had that class. I don't know. And uh, you have these just weird conversations with people. And so she knew I was in seminary and she was at film school at NYU, you know, progressive, uh, secular, kind of a very typical millennial uh, person. And um, she was like, so are you, can I ask you something? And I was like, I, let me put my eggnog and my cookies down. This is not about like my Christmas plans. And uh, I was like, do you, let me ask you if you really believe this. And I, I pretty much knew what it was going to be about because it's always about this issue. And usually she was like, do you, like, let me get this straight. Do you really think that sex is reserved for the covenant of marriage? That's the only time that it can be expressed and that that has to happen for the entirety of that relationship. There, there can be nothing else outside of that. It's like, do you, do you really think that? I remember just being like, yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, but inside there was this part of me that was like, no, that just sounds so, I want you to like me, not feel like I'm a weird, freaky Christian, you know? It's like, there's just this like, and if you haven't felt like that, you're lying, <laughs> right? Because all of us have this sense where it's like, I know we believe this and we want to honor the Lord, but increasingly in our culture, like it was in Corinth, it just feels like so archaic. And so she looked at me and she said something and then just she had a facial expression. She goes, R.D. <laughs> she goes, goes I, you're just, you, I feel like you're intelligent. <laughs> I was like, well, it's like, I can't believe that you believe this, right? And I was like, well, thank you. <laughs> and I do. And I just remember she looked at me and, uh, you know, we're just kind of sitting there. I picked up back, my eggnog back up and, and I'm like, you know, and she just looked at me like with just this look of like sadness, right? She was just like, she was sad for me. Like, so that's so repressive. That's so like outdated. I'm free to do whatever I want, right? And you, little Christian, oh, RD, <laughs> right? And that, that's, at least people in my generation, that's pretty much common. It's pretty much normal, Right? 
But it's not a new thing. The sexual revolution didn't start in the 60s, right? It started in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and said, we know a better way. But it's ramped up, certainly, recently. But it was pretty intense there because the Corinthians were under the mindset that we can do what we want. It's my body. I can do what I want with it. And how dare anyone tell, if, if I'm not hurting anyone, if it's consensual, if we love each other, then who are you to ever judge me? Wow, it sounds a lot like what the Corinthians said. Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul's going to begin with a quotation from the Corinthians. And this is what he says in verse 12. I have the right to do anything. That's what they're saying. Paul responds, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything, Paul says. They say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So here's what they're saying. Does it sound like 55 AD and 2015 AD are not that far apart? Right? These are Christians saying, we have a right to do anything. We're free in Christ, right? We can do whatever we want. We're bringing our past practices into the present, and God's just going to redeem them and change them some way, but we don't really want to break with that. We have a right to do anything. And Paul says, but not everything you do in your own freedom is beneficial for you or for others, right? And everyone admits that. Secular people, Christians, it doesn't matter. We all admit that not everything people want to do is healthy for themselves or for others, Secondly, they say, we have a right to do anything. And Paul says, but you can't be mastered by anything. Because here's the deal. Whatever it is that you're living for, you are a slave for that thing, for that person. If you are, say, I'm free to do anything. I'm free, right, to pursue success. I'm free to pursue this relationship. I'm free to determine my own destiny. Everyone is living for someone or something. Success, approval, um, sexual satisfaction, right? A clean house, right? Kids, no kids, right? A new life. Everyone is living for something or someone. Everyone has something on the throne, that they worship. And you may not think of it that way, but if it gives you meaning, if it gives you value, right? If you wake up and say, if I can just have this and possess this, everything will be okay, then you're not free. You're a slave to that person or that thing. And the only person that you can be really a slave or a servant to that will not crush you or disappoint you or devastate you is the Lord. Everything else is just a shadow and behind every shadow of our longings is the substance of Jesus Christ. Right, Mark said before in his message on Proverbs, people who are looking for sexual relationships, deep, deep, deep down, right, they're looking for God. I can't remember the quote, some of you may remember, but uh, I don't think it's Lewis. Um, someone else would say, every person who knocked on the door of a brothel is secretly looking for God. Because there's this sense that we are wired to be loved and to receive love. But our culture has so distorted it to be like, you choose happiness for yourself. And we have no clue what's going to make us happy. And so we keep trying all of these things. And Paul is saying, that's not beneficial. That's not good. They're saying food for the stomach, the stomach for food, right? Sex is an appetite. I'm hungry, I eat food. I want sex, I go have sex. What's the big deal? God's going to destroy my body. What does it matter? And Paul's saying it matters. It matters, it matters, it matters. Because sex in their culture and sex in our culture has become dehumanizing. And it's so much more than just one body touching another body. 
And we all know that. And so Paul is going to run through four reasons. I'll run through them quickly about why we should have bodily integrity as followers of Christ. Now, this is specifically for Christians he's talking with. But also, this is always wise advice, though, for what's going to lead to the most joy. Following Christ, submitting to his commands is for your joy, not to kill your joy. (laughs) Number one, the body will be physically resurrected. That's verse 14. In verse 13, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Our bodies are meant to glorify the Lord Jesus. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. So this is just, maybe you know this, but I think I didn't really realize this for a long time, that my body will last into eternity. Now, yes, thankfully, it'll be a new body right? It'll be a redeemed body, but you're going to have flesh and bones and teeth and eyes and hair, crazy hair. I don't really know, right? But it's, you're going to have a physical body. And Paul's saying, you don't like, your body is not just here temporary. It's not like a temporary bodysuit. You discard it and you go to heaven and then you fly around and like a spirit, right? But for the, the Corinthians, they're separating that. They're saying, our body is just this dirty kind of bad suit. I get rid of it, and I'm going to get this higher level of consciousness in heaven. So what does it matter? And Paul says, it matters because your body is holy, because God created it. And he raised Jesus' body from the dead. He'll raise your body from the dead, so it matters because it lasts forever. It's not holy in and of itself. It's holy because God created it, and it will last. And so we want to be thinking about eternity and not just for now. Secondly, your body has been joined to Jesus Christ. You have union with Christ. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So this is a profound biblical teaching. When Jesus Christ dies for our sins in our place on the cross, we are then, and we trust in that, we are hidden with him. So now when God looks at us, he sees Christ in us. That's how our sins are forgiven. That's, that, that, right, that's the whole point of it all, that we're now united to Christ, fused with him, joined with him. We're one with him. And so what's happening in Corinth is that though that's true of some of these men, especially, they are still going to the temple in Corinth and sleeping with the prostitutes there. And they don't really see a problem with them. Paul's saying, how can you do that? If you've truly been joined to Christ, united to him by his life, his death, and his resurrection, how can you unite yourself to someone who's not your spouse? It's not just as existentially meaningless as kissing, right? Paul's saying it's one flesh. Every time we engage with someone sexually, it is a one flesh union. And that's why this sin is so profound, And why there can be so much trauma from it. So much can happen from this. And Paul is saying, if you've been united to Christ, when when you're then going and doing this, you you are in a sense trying to wrench yourself away from Christ and unite yourself bodily to someone else. But thankfully, Christ keeps us. Thankfully, he keeps us. Even when we still keep doing these things, Paul says, come back. Now notice, none of these men are under church discipline. So it's not that everyone gets under it. Maybe there was some repentance in their life. Maybe they were sorrowful over what they were doing. And Paul says, you can't keep doing this. You say, well, I'm not sleeping with a prostitute. I love my girlfriend. 
I love my boyfriend. This is totally different. And I just want to say it's actually not. Paul's insight here is so profound. He says if your body is holy, if it's beautiful, if sexual relationships are made by God for the covenant of marriage, that's where they are to be experienced. Because when that happens, you become one flesh. You're united together deeply. When you take that experience outside of marriage, then they're one flesh relationships all over. It doesn't matter how much you love them or how little you love them. What matters, right, is what Scripture says the boundary markers are. Now, I know that's not popular. I know that's controversial, right? But this is the good teaching of God's Word. We're united to Him. Thirdly, our body has been dwelt with the Holy Spirit. Number three, verse 18, flee sexual morality like Joseph does with Potiphar's wife. He runs out of there basically naked. Right? He's, get me out of here. I can't be near it. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know, which apparently they don't, <laughs> do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, this is amazing. So for the people of Israel, they had one temple they would go to, and that's where heaven met earth. That was where God's presence actually dwelt, in the temple. And, and Paul's saying, there's no temple to go to anymore because all of you in Christ are walking temples. All of you are the place where heaven meets earth. All of you possess the Holy Spirit inside of you, right? And the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to give us the power for holiness, how else can we live like this? How else could we possibly practice an ethic like this unless the Holy Spirit dwells in us? Our bodies are holy because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And so Paul says, don't you know your body is indwelt with the Spirit of God? You're a walking temple, a walking contradiction, heaven on earth, pointing to the greater glory that is to come. So honor the Lord with your body. The last one is just explicitly a gospel-driven motivation here. You are not your own. We could just have a whole sermon on that. You are not your own. There is no I want, I need, I desire in the kingdom of God. Right? You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The word therefore is so key because it'd be, it, it's easy for us to flip it. Right? Honor God with your bodies so that you will be possibly bought with a price. If your sexual record is clean enough, if it's perfect enough, then God will maybe buy you at a price. He'll maybe let you into the kingdom, right? And that's sometimes how we think, and sadly, it's sometimes, right, how it is taught. You've got to be perfect. You've got to be spotless, or God will not. And the point of what he's saying here is God knows you're not perfect. God knows you're sexually broken. You're sexually immoral. And he, he has many other things with which we struggle with, with which our behavior doesn't match up with what we believe. God knows all of that. He knows everything about you. And he still says, I bought you with a price. I want you in my family. I want you a part of the church to declare how mighty I am, how loving I am, how grace-filled I am, because I took someone like you, I saved you, I rescued you, I ransomed you, and I put you in the church as a cheerleader, basically, for me, to say, look what God has done in my life. I'm not perfect, but Jesus Christ is, and he's working inside of me. I was bought at a price, and the price was the life of God's son. His blood 
for us. And so Paul is saying these are the gospel motivations for living a sexually holy life, for having bodily integrity, not because we're more moral, not because we want to judge others, right? Not because we're like, oh, sex is icky and it's bad. No, none of that nonsense, right? The gospel has to be the motivation for us to remain pure and always be reminded, whatever our past is, however we sin, that does not keep us, right? The cross of Christ is greater than your sin. It is greater. And the church is this beautiful place where we say everyone is welcome here. Come as you are, but that is not enough. Look at me. Come as you are, but the much greater news is become who you are in Christ. That's the church. Everyone is welcome here. Everyone can have a home here. Everyone can come here and have their life absolutely changed. Mine's been changed by the church. Yours has been changed by the church, by Jesus Christ working in the church, but a part of the church, actually, everyone is welcome here. Whatever your struggles are, whatever you're thinking about God, you don't love God, you can't believe what I've been saying for the past 40 minutes, it doesn't matter because the point is come as you are, but become who you are in Christ. And together we're doing that. What a beautiful place where one person says, I've got a lot of junk. And the other person then feels the confidence to say, oh, me too. <laughs> and then the third person says, oh, me three. Hey, why don't together we repent and confess to each other so that together we can look more and more like Jesus Christ. I think that's what the church is. That's Paul's hope. That's his desire. We've been washed by the healing hands of Jesus, justified, sanctified, glorified. And Paul's hope is that we would put to death the yeast, put to death the darkness, and be the new loaf and the new bread we already are. And the only way we can do that is by the Spirit. He gives us the power to live a new life. And he says, do it within the church. Let me pray for you. Father, how... How in the world could we live these things out outside of the power of the Holy Spirit? Father, our church has, is filled with the same kinds of people as the church in Corinth, and yet we are blameless and loved in your sight. And so I pray for everyone here, known by you, loved by you, those who are far from you. Father, whoever is here, whoever is listening to this, I just pray that they would know that you have bought us at a price. You are the true lamb who was sacrificed for us. You've made us a new loaf. Father, help us be grace-filled people who put to death the yeast so that together Door Creek Church would be a place where the new bread is being made every single week. Let us keep the festival going and celebrate our much greater exodus and longing to come home where you will raise us one day to see our Savior face-to-face -face, bodily, fully. Finally, in the name of Jesus Christ, who gave up his life for us, and we all prayed. Amen.